All right. Well, if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and pull out your Bible and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll get started. Uh, as, as most of you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, this church just started a few weeks ago. Uh, and for the last month or so since we've been around, um, we've only been talking about vision. And so if you're new today, or if you've missed um, some or all of the Vision series, uh, we have podcasts available on the website if you want to go back and listen to those. And those teachings are important uh, because they kind of sum up our DNA as a church, uh, who we are and where we're headed in general terms from the sort of 30,000 foot level. Um, so last Sunday, we concluded the vision series, uh, and this Sunday, we are starting a new series in the book of Matthew. Matthew is uh, the first book in the New Testament, and for those who don't know, uh, it's one of four different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, the first four books in the New Testament are Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, and each of them is um, not truly a biography, uh, but more of a firsthand account or sampling of some of the important moments in the life of Jesus. Uh, so if you pick up the New Testament, uh, as I did when I was a brand new Christian, my freshman year of college, had just given my life to Jesus, got my first Bible, I just picked it up and started in the book of Matthew and started reading through and if you read chronologically through the scriptures, um, what you run into in the New Testament uh, is four of these back-to-back -back accounts of Jesus' life. And what you'll notice is that there's a lot of similarities between them. So as I was reading these books as a new Christian, I kept having those moments of saying, what? that's weird. Like, I think I've read this story before. Like, I think I remember that. And then kind of turning the page to the next one saying, hey, hey wait a second, I've, I've read this story before too. And kind of had that moment of like, hey, who wrote this book? Like, wh why are these stories just repeating themselves over and over again as you read? Uh, and, and what I didn't grasp as a brand new Christian uh, is that there are four different gospel authors and that each account was written to a slightly different audience by a different author and, and that therefore there's differences in style and emphasis um, among the four gospels. Each one is varied. And so there are several features that are unique to the gospel according to Matthew. Um, for example, uh, the, the, the gospel according to Matthew um, is the only one of the four that it has the full version of Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of the, the kingdom manifesto of Jesus. So starting in the new year, we're going to do a series just on Sermon on the Mount, an in-depth series on the teachings of Jesus. Uh, additionally, Matthew is the longest of the four Gospels, and even more significantly, Matthew is written by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience announcing the arrival of their long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And, and that deeply affects the way that Matthew wrote the book and the things that he chooses to highlight in Jesus' life. For example, uh, Matthew references the Old Testament or the Bible of Jesus' day over 130 times in his short account of Jesus' life. And he's the only gospel writer uh, who continuously 
uses the phrase, um, Jesus did this to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. Over and over again, he says these things, which means that as we go through this series, we're necessarily going to be taken into the Old Testament and into the writings of the prophets. Matthew is going to make it abundantly clear that we can't understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. That they are, in fact, one coherent story, and that Jesus is the the climax and fulfillment of that story. The problem is that we aren't Jewish. We aren't Israelites, and we didn't grow up in this culture And so as we go through this series, we're going to have to work a little bit harder to understand what it is that Matthew's saying and what it would have meant to the original audience. Because the scriptures were written for us, but they weren't written to us. They were written for the family of God and for all of humanity for all time, but they were also penned by a specific person who was writing with a specific audience in mind, locked into a certain time and place and culture that's not us. And and so in order to understand it, we're going to have to dig a little deeper and and unpack it. But as we do, it's going to come to life. We're going to catch a glimpse of the bigger picture that Matthew was getting at. Make sense? Two of you think so. There we go. All right. Um, So with that disclaimer out of the way, um, we're ready to start into the book of Matthew. Um, So if you have your Bibles open, we'll start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nishan. We all remember him. Nishan, the father of another guy. That guy, the father of another guy. And on and on and on it goes. Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy. Could this be any more boring? Here is the announcement of the greatest news in the history of of creation, and you're going to start it with a genealogy? I mean, if I'm reading through the scriptures chronologically, I'm skipping right over this one, right? I mean, not every page of scripture is going to be exciting. But but a genealogy, Matthew? Seriously? What's the point? Why on earth do we care who Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandpa was? I don't. For us... In the modern day, genealogies are the worst. Can we just agree on that? There is nothing in this long list that jumps out as being immediately exciting. But 
The scriptures weren't written to us. The scriptures were written to them. And I would argue that if we dig a little deeper and we see the bigger picture, that, that perhaps for the original audience, this genealogy was exciting. Perhaps even heart pounding. But in order to see why, we have to go back to the beginning. Look back down to Matthew at the start of the genealogy in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham. And by doing so, he's making a statement about who he believes Jesus to be. But, but we aren't Jewish, and, and we didn't grow up in the ancient Near East. So in order to grasp the fullness of what Matthew is getting at, we have to go back to the beginning. And, and I mean all the way back. N- not to the first verse in the New Testament, to the first verse in the Bible. Turn with me, if you would, um, to Genesis chapter 12, a few pages into the scriptures. And as you're turning to Genesis 12, um, I will attempt to sum up the first 11 chapters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he looked at everything that he had made And behold, it was very good for two whole chapters. By chapter 3, there is rebellion in the kingdom, and humanity goes from being God's intimate allies um, to, to being his enemies. Now, instead of steering creation toward God, humanity is steering one another, and creation itself away from God uh, and and deeper into darkness and entropy and sin and futility and frustration and death. And so God, in his mercy, uh, floods the world and kind of hits the reset button on humanity. Uh, And then, once again, in the aftermath of the flood, almost predictably, rebellion and darkness and sin begin to take hold and spread again. And so God announces that instead of flooding the world again, he has a plan for humanity. And this plan actually centers around one human being. That person is named Abraham. And that gets us up to chapter 12. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, who's later Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then he has this promise for Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In a single moment, God promises Abraham a people, that's Israel, a blessing, 
that his name will be made great and that he will be a blessing, not just locally, but that him and his offspring will be a blessing to every nation on earth. And the rest of Scripture can be viewed as the fulfillment of this covenant or this promise with Abraham. It is difficult to overestimate the importance of this covenant and the role that it plays in Scripture. But there are two things in particular that I want us to notice about this covenant today for our purposes. First, I want us to notice who the promised channel of blessing is. And and then I I want us to note the method in which this this covenant, this promise, is ratified. We're going to take each of those in turn. Starting with the who. Abraham is told that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And as the story unfolds, he he gets increasing clarity as to what that entails. Um, God finally gives him a son after years of waiting in his old age, through which this promise can now be accomplished. And then to test Abraham in in one of these confusing passages in Scripture, he, he asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son through whom all of these promises are to take, take hold in reality. And, and so Abraham's faced with this nearly impossible task, and, and somehow Abraham passes the test and doesn't have to sacrifice his son. And then in the aftermath, God tells Abraham, it is through your offspring that all nations on earth will be blessed. So it's coming into focus a little more. And this exact same promise gets repeated to his son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob. And the whole time it's a forward-looking promise about offspring that are yet to come. But, But there's an element of this language here that we miss when we read the passage in English. In that translation, we lost something that I want to highlight. Uh, the word for offspring here it is not as straightforward as it first appears. The, the Hebrew word that's used is the word zerah. Can you say zerah? Zerah. And zerah can be translated in English, descendants, offspring, or perhaps the best translation is seed. And, and the interesting element of this word zerah is that the same word can be used in the singular form and the plural form, depending on the context. So we have words like this in English, right? Like the word um, sheep. So you can say, hey, look, I have a sheep. Or you can say, hey, check me out. I've got a lot of sheep, right? Exact same word. And I try to come up with like a Hebrew ancient example, you know? But exact same word used for one or for multiple, depending on the context. And this word, zerah, is used over 60 times in the book of Genesis alone. And, and it's sort of central to the storyline. But there are some times and places where zerah is used in the plural form. 
talking about Israel and eventually something even bigger than that, the family of God. But there are other times, based on the context, where God appears to be talking about a single descendant of Abraham, a single seed, a single Zerah of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this case, when God says it is through your offspring, Zerah, that all nations on earth will be blessed, as far as we can tell, this is, this is using it in the singular form. That there's a singular seed through which this promise will be accomplished. Are you with me? Okay. So, by starting with the genealogy, and by starting with Abraham... Matthew is not just saying that that Jesus is simply a member of this nation of blessing. He's not out to prove that Jesus is is simply a citizen of Israel and and part of the family line of Abraham. And he's not out to prove that Jesus happens to be related to some very influential people within the faith. By starting with a genealogy and by starting with Abraham, Matthew is saying This is the one we've been waiting for. The singular Zerah of Abraham, through which the the covenant promise of God will at last be fulfilled. Through him, all nations on earth will be blessed. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, singular, Zerah, meaning one person who is Christ. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for, through whom every nation on earth will be blessed. And I think it would be enough for us at the start of the series to to just kind of sit back and marvel at that. That that for centuries, God's people waited for this promise to come to fruition. There was anticipation behind this. And then, to make things even more interesting, God ultimately fulfills this promise to Abraham by stepping into humanity himself as the person of Jesus, and into the family line of Abraham to become the single human being through which all the nations would be blessed. The promise to Abraham is finally being accomplished. But before we move on, there's something else in the text that I want us to see involving this promise that God made to Abraham. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles a few pages to the right to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. The promise of descendants who will inherit the promised lands becomes a a hugely important um, piece of, of this covenant. It becomes central to Abraham's hope and in fact, central to God's redemption plan for humanity. The the problem is that Abraham and Sarah can't have children. 
And, and they're getting older and older and older. And so Abraham's clinging to this promise, but years begin to pass. And, and finally, Abraham starts to doubt. Uh, and, and then that doubt really starts to flare up. He starts, God, are you really going to do this? And, and this is where we pick up in, in chapter 15 as he struggles through this. Chapter 15, verse 1. says, The word of the Lord came to Abram, or Abraham, in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? It's a huge problem. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring, plural, be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is a hugely important moment. Abraham is trusting God even when it makes no sense. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But, Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? In other words, how can you prove it to me? How do I know that all of these promises you've been giving will actually come to pass? And this is where things get weird, at least in our 21st century eyes. I want us to pay attention to this. Abraham's saying, God, I need some proof. Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Okay. I, I can't wait to try that one on my wife. Hey, honey, did you remember to lock the back door? Yeah, I remembered. Are you sure? Bring me a heifer. We're going to settle this. Like, what? Well, I don't know what that sounds like. You got, this is weird. And it gets weirder. So Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two or in half, and arranged their halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Okay, let's pause here for a moment, because this really is weird. Uh, Abram is cutting animals in half. And unless we understand why, this entire scene is going to be lost on us. Thousands of years ago, they did not have the legal and governmental structures in place that we have. And and so your word was your bond. Life and death hung on your words. They were hugely important. So if you were going to swear an oath to someone, there were different rituals that were available to you. And the more serious the oath you were swearing, the more serious of a ritual you would choose. And and we have like fragments of this in our culture, right? With like 
blood brothers or whatever who like cut their hands and put them together. Don't recommend that at all from a health perspective. Uh, but, but we have this concept, right, of like, I can be so serious. We have the phrase, I'll sign in blood, okay? So what we're witnessing right here, um, within the ancient Near East, this, this was the most serious form of, of covenant ratification that was available to them. And, and what the parties would do, according to this tradition, is that they would dig a trench in the ground, and then they would bring animals and they would sacrifice the animals and cut them in half and arrange their halves on either side of the trench. And so over time, the blood from these animals would flow down and, and kind of fill this trench with blood. And then the, the parties would walk through the trench, al- allowing the blood to get on their feet in the bottom of their robes. And as they walked between the animals... And this is what they would say, in essence. If I do not keep my end of the bargain, you can do to me what we have just done to these animals. In other words, I swear on pain of death that I will not violate the terms of this agreement. In the ancient Near East, you could not be more unequivocally clear in the gravity of your intent. And this practice would have been a familiar thing within within the culture that Abraham was in. We'll pick up in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. And he goes on to describe the land. And it's easy to miss, but, but do you see what just happened here? All right, so we've, we have the sacrifices set. We're ready to swear to our ends of the bargain. And in context, Abraham is agreeing that him and his descendants will walk in righteousness and obedience to God. And then God is saying, I'll hold up my end of the bargain, and you'll have this land and this blessing and this promise. So they're all set to walk through. But, but, but what's Abraham doing? He's sleeping. He's in a trance. He's done. He's not walking anywhere. Instead, what happens is that a smoking fire pot moves between the pieces. And fire in the ancient Near East was sort of symbolic of God. And so you think of of stories in the scriptures even, that, that Moses first encounters God in a burning bush in the fire. And, and then when the Israelites are freed and brought out into the desert, they, they meet with God on Mount Sinai, and there's smoke and fire. And, and then he goes to lead them through the desert for 40 years, and they follow a pillar of fire. And, and so those were kind of equivalent in the ancient Near Eastern mind, symbolic. They're tied together. And, and so w- when we see a smoking fire pot 
move between the pieces, um, this is symbolic of God swearing to his end of the bargain. And and then a, a blazing torch moves between the pieces. Also, again, representing God. This is a highly unorthodox consummation of this covenant. Abraham doesn't walk through at all, and instead, God walks through twice. As if to say, Abraham, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, you can do this to me. As if we could do that to God, right? And then he says, Abraham, if you and your descendants don't walk in righteousness and live up to your end of the bargain, then you can do this to me. God binds himself unequivocally to humanity and the descendants of Abraham. All we could do in that moment was receive. And so Abram continues to follow God and to hope in these promises. And eventually Abraham grows old and passes away, but the promises remain. And they're carried for years and then for centuries. Until one fateful night, thousands of years later, when a son of Abraham was born in a manger among sheep, raised among disobedient descendants of Abraham, he called them back to the Father, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he did it better than anyone because he was God. But the descendants of Abraham didn't accept him. And so in their disobedience and unrighteousness, they arranged for him to be killed. And he was handed over to the Romans. And he was flogged and mocked and beaten. The skin was stripped from his back. And the scriptures say he was marred beyond recognition beyond human likeness. A pile of mutilated flesh, they nailed him to the cross. They did to him what Abraham had done to the animals. And as he was lifted up and hung in public for the world to see, and his life slipped from his mutilated body, he spoke a phrase over the crowd that had gathered. It is finished. In the original language, these words speak of an old debt being repaid. That perhaps a long-standing covenant debt that God was willing to pay on behalf of those who had forsaken him, was being offered up. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. 
because you have been disobedient, you can do this to me. It is finished. And as he breathed his last, he paid the penalty for our sin. And the door to the Father was flung open. And now all who come to him are forgiven and washed clean and adopted in. And in the words of Scripture, we are now sons and daughters of Abraham. We are now blessed to be a blessing. You see, it was only in the sacrificial death of Jesus that we begin to understand just how much this son of Abraham, this Zerah, would bless the world. For it was through his sacrifice on the cross that every nation on earth is being blessed. And there are are layers of richness in understanding what Jesus was doing on that cross in Jerusalem. But I'd like to suggest that one of the ways we can view that sacrifice was the fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham and his descendants. There will be a seed, singular, from Abraham to bless all the nations on earth. Keep track of your genealogies. It's going to happen. And in the meantime, if your seed, plural, do not act in righteousness, in accordance with our covenant, then you can do to me what we have done to the animals. And this covenant will be fulfilled in all of its glory and in all of its shame. Then you'll know then you'll know how much I love you. Then you'll know my heart to bless you and to bless the nations, every nation on earth. We worship a God who would die so that we could have fullness of life. But we worship a God who would walk through twice, who would unilaterally bound himself to humanity and the offspring of Abraham. There is no one like this God. And now, through the cross of Jesus, we are adopted into the family of, of Abrahamic lineage. You and I are grafted into that genealogy. We are children of the promise. And, and Jesus is still the means through which God will bless every nation on earth. But you and I become avenues and channels for that blessing. That as we go out into the world with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with the gospel, we become agents of blessing, sons and daughters of Abraham into a hurting world. And so Matthew starts his gospel in perhaps the most fitting way he possibly could. Here is the account of the birth of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the one we've been waiting for 
the one through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. Let's pray.